This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Gordon White. Gordon is an author, podcaster, blogger, and chaos magician. He begins by relating some early experiences of contact with non-human entities. In retrospect, it, I, I kind of noticed some things, right? Because, I mean, I grew up in Australia, and, and so some of the more eerie ones were accidentally wandering onto land we shouldn't have been on. So there's a, um, there's a national park near where I grew up called Glenrock Lagoon, and my first sort of nascent attempts at magic were done at the top of this waterfall. And we should not have done that. <laughs> so Australia obviously is the oldest continent on Earth and home to the longest continually practiced cultures on Earth going back 50,000 years. So when it comes to an understanding of, of humans' embeddedness in time and in, in a living universe, there, there really is nothing like... You're not getting a coherent picture or as coherent as possible if you're not engaging with Aboriginal Australian modes of thought and, and cosmologies because... They've been at it. They've seen off ice ages. They've been at it a lot longer than we have, right? Of course, as a 13-year-old, you don't really think like that, certainly not growing up in, a, in an Australia that has a lot of work to do when it comes to race relations and, and healing our really terrible past. And so that was one. That was really interesting where we, uh, a friend of mine and myself attempted like a, like a Wiccan self-initiation at the top of this waterfall. And then on the walk back, because you kind of have to walk down through the bush along the little river um, to the beach and then along the beach and then kind of up a cliff. And that's how we would get back to our house. And we were, things were following us back. And it was really eerie corner of the eye as you turn around elongated figures, like almost cartoon-like in the sense of almost like a really stretched stick figure kind of entities. And it was just very weird. And it was one of those fascinating at the edge of perception things because it was clearly there and we could both see them when we were seeing them and, and otherwise not. And that, yeah, that don't do magic in a place where you haven't, you don't know who's done magic there before or what lives there. Um, so that was an interesting one as a kid. There were earlier ones that, again, in retrospect, I'm like, okay, so these are screen memories of, of some description, right? So I had classic hag attacks as a, as a young child, and, and in the sense of it being the paralysis and the sort of half-waking-up paralysis, aware that there was something standing in the room, and this entity would wait until I was aware of that, and then kind of zoom forward and be right at my face and essentially sort of feed on the fear. And it was the classic hag shape. So like old, extra-dimensional, terrifying witch woman kind of thing. So that was one of them. That would happen a lot, that as I kind of grew into this field, I realized, oh, this is something that falls in between mainstream, I guess, neurology and, and what we, whatever we think of with UFOs and spirit contact and all the rest mm -hmm. of it, because the, the sort of description of different parts of the brain waking up at the same time may well be true. But like I have some experience with things like spirits and so on now, there was something in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's kind of like in the same way entheogens reduce neurochemical activity and that's why you have the sort of experiences outside of usual consciousness maybe there's something to maybe it's similar to that that if different parts of the brain wake up at different times then all of a sudden you're seeing things that typically surround us but ordinarily don't intersect with us and then the same thing like i would have 
in a related vein, memories um, or, or recurring nightmares that came with paralysis that are patently screen memories of some sort of contact. So I would get, it would again be paralysis and then I would shrink to like, to the point that the, the weave of the fitted sheet was the size of ship ropes, right? Like sort of 30 centimeter diameter ropes and they would mm-hmm. kind of trap me in place. And there was an entity in the room that looked like, I don't know if you remember He-Man, but there was a character in that called Buzz Off. And that's what my child mind was seeing. So like a giant bee humanoid and I was trapped and in amongst this sort of, and I was trapped by the ropes and in amongst them was like a Romulan warbird that was sort of flying around. So again, once I hit adulthood and sort of started exploring ufology, I'm like, okay, so this is a child's mind attempting to make sense of something. And it's interesting that it's like alien bugs and essentially being trapped in a prone position, right? So it's Streber adjacent. So yeah, that I, I definitely had experiences that, in retrospect, it, I think this happens to a lot of people who who are in that world. Like, oh, I just thought that happened to everyone, and and it happens to more people than we typically realize. But it, I don't think it happens to everyone. Going back to the initial experience you related, the initiation ritual gone afoul at the waterfall. Were you and your friend discussing what was happening as it was occurring? Oh, yeah. The, we essentially fled the last kilometer out of the bush because it was too weird. Like it was, it got to the point of almost like the movie Predator, right? So there was stuff moving in the, in the bushes beside the trail. It was really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's the most stupid, stupid teenage thing, right? Like I think we were attempting a self-initiation out of like a Llewellyn Wicker book that literally had a typo. So... I think from memory, it was a, instead of bull, which should have been in the north, the north visualization, the paper actually said bell rather than bull. So not only were we self-initiating into Wicca using this, the, the sort of resources that 13-year-olds have access to, but it was like with typos. That was, <laughs> was the level <laughs> that we're at. So oh. we're visualizing a bell in the north rather than a bull, right? That's almost Scooby-Doo level type. Oh, we we could aim for (laughs) Scooby-Doo. So the initiation went awry and you had repeated experiences, a mobile of screen memories that comport with abduction and contact profile points. It sounds on the whole intense and unpleasant. Yeah. But it didn't dissuade you, did it? No, and and so that was a weird, like the Glenrock Lagoon mistake was what it was. But the, even before that, the first time, because we lived on a on a hill that overlooked the beaches in in Newcastle, Australia, and so we sort of had a terrace backyard on with a different Llewellyn book um, or similar. I arranged some rocks into a circle to start doing a thing and sort of looking over a beach. And it was on one of the terraces that we don't usually, or we didn't usually mow. So there was, the grass was about 20 centimeters high. And so I'm arranging these rocks. And speaking of predator, this entity, like basically a fairy. So the, the, as I was moving these rocks around, the grass took the shape of a humanoid moving through it. And it was just, 
plain as as day. And I'm like, that's interesting. Wow. It was sort of at the edge of the, like the very, very beginnings of my magical career had stuff that happened that made me realize, well, this works. <laughs> I don't know how, <laughs> Yeah, but it does a thing. Yeah. So perhaps that's why you were not dissuaded. There was confirmation in these experiences that something ontologically legit was afoot and that and that sailed you through what may have just freaked out most people. Many people would just show themselves out after such encounters. But you felt, ah, this is real. It's more interesting that it's real. But so that is genuinely why I'm, I have very little interest in how people come to their awareness of the reality of these phenomena. Uh, and I actually write, write about that in, in Chaos Protocols. I'm like, I literally don't care what event, I call it becoming invincible, happens to you that makes you realize that humans are embedded in, in this profound and largely unknowable context. I don't care what it is. Like alien abduction, grew up in a haunted house, doesn't matter. And the thing is, and this is something Dr. Kripal observes correctly, if you look at the Bible, encounters with God can kill you. Like people get turned into salt. So we have this and it's not that this isn't true. So in incorporating spiritual understanding and, and calling on spiritual powers for things like healing and protection and all that, all true and all valid. Um, but that's not the only thing that happens. And, and that's never been the only thing that happens. And it's retained in our own traditions. We don't even need to look horizontally as well we should to other cultures and, and how they experience it to, to realize that's in fact the case. But yeah, I think people, I think people bounce. And that's t typically what happens in, in occultism. The ones who don't bounce going, well, that's terrifying. The ones who don't bounce go, hang on, this is terrifying because there's something real to this. And then you kind of pull on that thread and you're pulling on that thread for the rest of your life. You mentioned you're not interested in what the particular origin story is of how a person arrives in the anomalous, the mysterious. But at this stage of maturity in your work, when considering the variety of entities we're engaging with, from fae to interdimensionals, discarnate, etc., do you have a sense of the range of that population, and is it different now for you than it was 10 years ago? Yes. So it's the same problem as the measurement problem, and it comes down to whether you think you live in a universe that is alive or isn't, right? So the empirical methods we've inherited from the Enlightenment are certainly useful for things, but they you can't sort of get outside of them. So empiricism is essentially the statement that nothing exists outside of sense data, which itself is a statement that exists outside of sense data because you can't know it, right? So it's really, really useful as a kind of single flashlight in a very dark and very large cave. So it comes back to if you think the universe is alive and embedded or has an interiority that is a spirit world, then that's kind of like the baseline. So I do it as a food pyramid, really, where when it comes to UFO phenomena, the majority of stuff that's going on isn't that. Like, it, this is a description that happens. This is the only description that is effectively allowed by probably the cosmology that people bring to this field to start with. And then once they're there, hopefully kind of unpack it and get a, a wider cosmology that allows them to revisit what these phenomena are, right? So I would, uh, like, 
it's funny when you do UFO talks, it's like the majority of stuff that people see in the sky is not UFOs in the sense that it is little lanterns or, <laughs> you know, secret <laughs> projects or whatever. So you kind of, and it's true. Like you dismiss 90% of the encounters and then you're left with the 10% and that becomes your new hundred percent. Like, well, how do we, how do we frame these experiences that patently aren't Chinese lanterns or something? And for that, I kind of food pyramid it and go, well, the majority of this kind of stuff is how we describe a, a continuous interaction that's been happening to humans since there have been humans. I do think, and this is maybe where I have changed in the last 10 years, is that was, and, and people kind of, they almost tip, and this is a, a criticism I have for people in the field at the moment, they almost tip too deeply into, oh, it's all spirits then, and, and UFOs are just how we describe spirits. Yes, but that's not enough. So if anything, my change in the last 10 years is that some of them actually are aliens. <laughs> so we, we do occasionally get visited by biological organisms from other planets. It's just that that is happening in the context of a universe that is alive. And I think that's, and I don't know, it's not like I'm going to go back through people's experiences and go, well, that one was from off planet and that one's a spirit and that one's a Bigfoot and that one's a blah, blah, blah. More, I think, from a discursive perspective, we tipped too far into calling everything spirits. And, and I know, and the thing that changed my mind is the work of people like Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark, who has spent years amongst Turtle Island custodians and the Maya and, and so on. And I've done, had this experience on country in, uh, in an Aboriginal context as well, where you have these native cultures talking about star people. And, and so an Aboriginal context, well, so the Ananu believe that stars are the campfires of the ancestors. And I love that from a panspermia perspective, because we can again hold up the scientific perspective and go, that's indeed true. And you just, when you're out in the desert underneath these stars, it's so true. And it's a way of talking about our planet in communion with millions of other planets around and, and kind of the origin of how life exists in the universe in the first place and so on. So they have that, but they also have star people. So like, and also we are visited by star people. And that's the next bit that I think, this is what I would like to see return. And, and it never returns correctly. Like we've just had to deal with the TTSA nonsense and whatever. So it's, 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 it seems to be this binary of going, it's all little green men or it's all fairies. And, and it's more that, Aliens exist as do we in a universe that is alive. And I think that's the biggest, <laughs> that's the biggest change for me is, um, is how we situate them. And again, it's food pyramid. The majority of it is spirits at the bottom of the pyramid. And then the top teeny, teeny bit is the scant historical encounters with physical organisms or the stuff on Mars, right? Like some of the things that exist in our weird world are or were physical organisms. You mentioned insectoid morphology figuring in some of your early experiences. There's a mantid presence in a wide array of cultures going back tens of thousands of years. Totemically, spiritually, they've been important to many people throughout time, perhaps arguing for their always having been with us, whereas the advent of greys appears possibly more recent and seems to be anchored in a pragmatic utilitarian set of objectives whether hybridization or something other. What can be said of the gray-manted coupling in this regard? Well, so here's the thing where it kind of comes back to 
how you understand the spirit world as to does, does the spirit world have a physicality? And I think, I think it does. I think parts of it do. And having, you know, done, having been on dieta in, in the Amazon, my encounters on ayahuasca in the spirit world, where I draw that understanding from, right? So the mantids are a really good example of spirits that are physical, certainly in their own reality. This How I think about it and how I think about how novel manifestations happen is kind of something that Ingo wrote about in, in Penetration, where it was in Penetration, where he's up in Alaska with the twins and he sees that UFO kind of appear, or they, they find a UFO that's sort of drawing water up from a lake in, in some sort of like a refueling station, right, was how he thought of it. And so I think there are, it's, it's useful to think of it like dimensional intersection, and it's almost like they're either, they became aware of us, or we did maybe something changed in, in the EM fields of the 20th, late 20th century, which it did with the rise of cellular, that kind of lit us up in a different way and kind of tune that in. But I think of it more like, what if we're, what if these things are on the way somewhere else? And, and that's how you can kind of find and, and, and not find other things, right? Because, um, yeah, that, that it, it's kind of the, the flatland example of, if you take flatland to be like the top of a bowl of custard, and I think this is a cripal thing, and a spoon comes into the custard, because we're on, in that two-dimensional space, one, we have no idea what the shape of the actual... So the ontology of the spoon is, is hidden from us. We don't know its shape and we don't know what it's for. We just encounter it moving through our world. And I think that's in play a lot of the time. And it's, it's one of the things that can be a red herring that comes out of an enlightenment way of thinking where we have to kind of classify everything and, and pin every little butterfly we find onto like a, onto a cork board in, in the natural history museum and go, that's this and this is that. Because what is so inspiring and wise about non-Western spirit traditions, the ones that remain intact, and I, I include some Aboriginal Australian ones in that, but Amazonia and Melanesia and places, is they don't need to know. It's more about getting along. So they don't need to know what they are or where they're from. They just need to make sure they don't steal the kids or whatever it happens to be. And there's a, there's a human awareness that, like, look, the cosmos is vast. <laughs> and, and there are just things out there, right? And, and if you look at what we would broadly consider shamanic traditions, it's not taxonomical. It's not how we would have with... Dionysus the Areopagite going, well, this is this class of angel and that's that class of angel and that's that class of angel. It's not taxonomical, it's operational. It, it's, how, <laughs> it's how humans live well in a, in a living universe. And, and so I describe it as extra-dimensional diplomacy because it's, it's interacting with the spirits of the forest and, and making sure that you're on good terms with the spirits of your prey animals and, and all the rest of it. And that includes weird stuff that happens. That includes you know, the sort of David Politis stuff that like hunting groups get taken by things. That's what happens, you know. And, and that I think is useful to sit with and form an individual opinion of like, well, how much, what, what is at the end of, of pinning all these little aliens on the corkboard? Like, what do you, wh where do we go with that? Is that what we want? Or is it, 
do we need something more operational? And, and I think that's probably something you'd find resonance with given the, the broad theme of the show, which is like, well, we, we're embedded in this context. What do we do with it other than describe it with our very limited and largely wrong tools? That's beautiful. In the spirit of extra-dimensional diplomacy, many of these entities have a dimensional ease of access that is enviable. They show up in our waking states, dreaming, fever, dreaming states, entheogenically induced states, ritual, contemplative, meditative states. Whatever cartography of states we make, a mantid entity, for instance, has shown up there. So why are they able to come here with apparent ease while we have such difficulty going there, meaning wherever their native domains may be? Should we attempt to visit them in their home realms? Is it advisable? How do we train such capacities? What are the liabilities and assets of doing so? How do we approach that conundrum in a healthy way? So I guess the first bit is we really only, you need, you need a magical cosmology to do the first bit. So we really only have brain states as the one kind of like yardstick or, or measuring tool for like, well, you just mentioned they show up when we're wide awake, they show up when we're meditating, when we're on drugs, when we're sleeping, whatever. But there are other mechanisms that in, in magical cosmologies that allow for movement and principally it's time. So if you look at all spirit systems uh, around the world, and I'll, we can talk about the ones that the West quote unquote inherited from Egypt is there are governing spirits for moments of time. So be they days or hours or particular astronomical, astrological correlations or configurations. And in those times, certain beings can do things uh, and we can talk to them. Now, the trouble is, unlike, say, in parts of Asia, our system for understanding this is broken. It is crashed like a UFO. Mm. So we have bits of it that occasionally work. <laughs> they work enough to know that there is something to this idea as well, which is that things happen at certain times. So as for how we go there or how they come here and, and, and what the work of that is, there's a crucial piece that we're missing in a living universe, which is that at different moments in time, different things happen. I know that sounds like obvious, but it's magically significant. And a big part of getting good at magic is, is finding that, that language of timing. And I, I'm surprised as anyone else, like I, I came at it from a classic chaos magic perspective going, well, that's all crap, isn't it? Unfortunately, it isn't. <laughs> it works better. So there's those two bits to begin with. And then the next is like whether we aren't, and I think we're always there. This, is, this kind of brings up, so the flow on from that is, should we go there? I think we're always there. I think that the universe is, has an interiority that we are differently attuned to at different times. And this is, it's so the divide isn't a distance one. And this isn't a real Amazonian idea that we don't have, we think of physical and non-physical or spirit and matter. But in uh, Amazonian cosmologies, there's visible and not visible. And that's crucially different because it's the presence is continually there. It's just some things aren't visible uh, and it's a sort of metaphoric divide. Some things aren't visible except in certain states and at certain times, but it doesn't mean they're not there. It means you just can't see them and vice versa. And, and that's a much better language or map or framework 
for situating humans, I think, in what is a very crowded universe. Like we do this work in, in the membership, like when we did the medical geography course. It's funny when people who are living in a city context desire to like get away from it all and, and be on their own. And so they will go into the woods or they will go into the jungle. Now, from an animist perspective, you are going from less crowded to extremely crowded in that situation. It's really interesting because you're now surrounded by all these non-human persons, trees and animals and spirits and things that are alive. It's just that we have this idea that because there are fewer humans around, we're on our own. You're not. <laughs> you're way more crowded in than you would be on a New York subway. And so the visible-invisible divide is the way of navigating that kind of crowded context. So as for should we go there or not, I'm not sure we're never not there. I think that's one of the premises. Now, are there more extreme versions of there that we would encounter as things like UFO experiences or abductions or ayahuasca journeys, that kind of stuff? Yeah, exactly. So there's, I think we're always, always there. And that we do as humans have a capacity with the assistance of other spirits like ayahuasca to move further into the spirit world and, and into their realms. And as for whether we should or shouldn't, I think we should. I, I, I think that's a thing humans do. And it's just part of that kind of like great cosmic ecosystem that is, I suppose, a living universe. The time component calls to mind Eric Wargo and a question I'd like to ask on remote viewing and chaos magic. What method in chaos magic can be enlisted towards remote viewing? What does it have or not have in common with the methods used by Ingo Swan, SRI, Pat Price, the greatest hits of remote viewing? Was that the 80s, early 90s? Probably early 80s. Yeah. Joe McGonigal. Are the two similar, dissimilar? What are the distinctions? I'm not sure if there's like a chaos magic remote viewing. So at the moment, the premium members are being taught by Lynn Buchanan himself so that we're actually getting like classic OG <laughs> remote viewing training. What I think you're getting at, and I, I actually have this theory about the block universe because Eric is great and the book was great. And I don't think it's right though. I think it is an exceptionally useful mental gymnasium for understanding that the present and the past, well, the future and the present and the past are all present. So the block universe is a kind of like natural extension of how one solves certain things like psi phenomena, which is that there is something about the future that is fixed. When you are performing practical enchantment, so if you're doing sigil magic or whatever, are you pulling from a future that already exists? Or are you, in the new thought sense, selecting from a particular medium-term future? And the thing is, we just, we don't actually know. And going through a block exercise model is just the best training for understanding that in some way, things like the future and the past are in living dialogue, right? So I think of the Maya Daykeeper idea well, I use that every Wednesday is the one Wednesday, but it is the same Wednesday. So there's the, I, we have different frames of understanding time that are available for us to learn if we look cross comparatively. Again, Aboriginal Australia, the Maya, and, and so on. And that seems closer to real than the whole thing is, is a block that we are just kind of cognitively moving through an existing framework. But because it, it's saying it in a way that feels more experientially aligned 
So all Wednesdays are the one Wednesday and all Mondays are the one Monday and, and all the rest of it is, is this way of understanding time that, again, brings the past and the future into your experience of that Wednesday. And if Wednesday, and this is why I like the Maya Daykeeper idea, these days or these um, Mayan days are beings, right? So it's not just we don't have really a concept of Wednesday as a being. But if we do, so let's just, it's easier with the seven days of the week, right? But if you picture the block universe as a block, but instead replace it with like glowing rods and each one of them is like a day or a month or something so that the universe is this assemblage of time beings, then all of a sudden you have a way of using some of the insight that comes from block research, block universe research, and kind of allowing you, or having that bring you into something that's very difficult for us, which is sort of like a dreaming or dream time model or a Maya daykeeper model. But that is there. If you think the universe is alive, then it is definitionally a collection of like time beings, right? And that is sort of what I mean by there are moments, we've lost the clock for this, like it kind of crashed with the fall of Alexandria, or was deliberately scrambled according to Dr. Skinner, and that's probably more correct. We've lost in the, the quote-unquote West a way to navigate the idea that not just the universe is alive, but like time is alive and, and time is a collection of beings. And that's, we, that's poorly described. Well, it's implied in astrology, but it's not explicitly laid out in the same way it is with Aboriginal dreaming models or Maya daykeeping. But you kind of get that blind man in the elephant sensation with this stuff that if the universe is alive, part of that is that it's an assembly of time beings. And that kind of, again, opens the door for how you want to think about the where and the when of UFO encounters, right? Because that's mm -hmm. something that um, Hynek and Valet looked at in the 60s was what times of day and month and what days and what weather events and, and so on correlated with seeing lights in the sky. And there were correlations. They happen more on some days than others. And, and there are some explanations for it, like Thursdays are the days, Thursday evenings are the days where you get most of the sightings appears to be, at least in the US, because that is when you would test secret aircraft, because then you have the Friday to kind of do the follow-up and file the report. And that appears to be, I find that kind of interesting, that if you look at it from a military perspective, military tests are typically on a Thursday, so you can do the reports by the end of the week, right? So there are, there are bumps that you can remove, but outside of that, it's like, well, does it happen more often when the moon is full? Does it happen more often? And there are correlations. And it's just an indication that there is something about time and in the universe is alive and that our experience of it is obviously incomplete. And so you have all these kind of, you just have to kind of blind men and the elephant it and go, well, time is a factor in this. And, and I think that's why I like the block universe. I don't think it's right um, because the universe is alive. And, and if it's alive, why would it be? There's no point. <laughs> there's, no, no. there's no point to a universe that, it, that already exists. It doesn't, it phenomenologically doesn't pass muster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. But, but it's a really good case, right? So, okay. so I think of it as a gymnasium for teaching you how to understand the dialogue that the future and the past have with the present. Okay, so a handful of things I'd like to circle back to and tease out a bit more. With respect to chaos magic as a form of remote viewing, I apologize. I had pulled that from something I'd read in one of your works. There's um, instructions for remote viewing in pieces of eight. 
Yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely a way of doing it, but that isn't like a chaos magic way of doing it. That's literally like, I think that's modified from Dr. Tug. So there's nothing like there's. I don't think there's a chaos magic remote viewing. I just like all those remote viewing people. Yeah, <laughs> right. Okay, got it. I also should have put in front of that question that Eric Wargo's assertion is that all successful remote viewing is misidentified precognition. We had him on Aliens and Artists in earlier episodes. But to Skinner, why was Skinner's position that it was deliberately scrambled? He's referring in particular to the sort of forerunner to the Solomonic grimoires, the, the earliest version of it, the Hygromantia. And what you see when you look at the earliest iterations of the Hygromantia is more complicated but still incomplete hour keeping which is a really Egyptian idea, right? That's where they get it from, like decans and the keeping of hours and, and so on. And then you sort of get to the next generation of these documents and it's simplified. So all the kind of detail, the precise detail of, and this is Egyptian magic is one of those examples of it only works at certain times. Like if you don't know, and, and what Skinner says based on his experience in initiatory traditions in Asia is the spirit world will not respond to you and doesn't have to respond to you unless you demonstrate that you are aware of how timing works. So no magic will get done if you don't acknowledge who the ruler of the day and the hour is that you are operating in because it needs, because you need its position, uh, permission to do it, right? So that's a kind of planetary hour, planetary day thing that you do find in the grimoires. But as Skinner points out, like it went from hours with really precise names to kind of like stretching across months and all the kind of the elaborate Egyptian thing. And that was the key to making it work. A couple of times in the history of the grimoires where they've kind of been deliberately scrambled. And the second one was about a thousand years later than that, where they scrambled the hierarchy of the spirit lists, because that's the other way you get it to work. It's the same idea of you, you need to get the timing right and get the permission of the governing spirits of time. And then if you want to call something else up, you have to know what it's kind of like, ruler or where it is in the hierarchy or again it won't respond to you and those are the kind of two mechanisms that allow solomonic magic to work right and they were scrambled and the second scramble was probably because they didn't want to get like burned or thrown in prison because the way the spiritless work have the sort of have an unholy triumvirate Lucifer, Beelzebub, Satan, right at the top. So they probably scrambled that <laughs> <laughs> just because let's not get burned over sharing these documents. But that's, yeah, that's what I mean by we used to have it under different regimes, quote unquote, Western magic. And it's funny, I, I say quote unquote, because Egypt is in Africa. So it's like a, we'll call it Mediterranean magic, used to be able to look eye, eye to eye horizontally with other spirit systems around the world. And now we kind of don't. Now we sort of have to look up, <laughs> look up oh. to them with like wonder and, and bewilderment um, because we've had the story of magic through European history in this sense, in the kind of like initiatory expert sense hasn't been great on a on a folkloric level it's it's like literally identical like the practice of rosaries and and praying to different local saints and all the rest of it is identical <laughs> across uh, cultures so humans kind of understand magic and have their own spirit relationships but the sort of the equivalent of dare i say shamanism problematic word that ran through european history isn't as good <laughs> as you will find basically yeah. anywhere else 
Yeah. Regarding block universe versus the living universe, I'm thinking of veridical accounts of near-death experiences. A person leaves their body, travels outside the hospital, sees a red shoe on the roof, then they're revivified, they share their account of this perception which occurred while clinically dead. Someone goes on the roof, confirms the red shoe is indeed there, where the patient claimed. Then you have 50 years of data from the University of Virginia's Division of Perceptual Studies on past life recall in children. How do these considerations sit or not sit with the block universe versus the living universe cosmology as you've delineated? So there's a good one. I don't know if you've read Changed in a Flash. I had Elizabeth. Yes. Yep. So when she describes what she can now do, having had her near-death experience and been to the afterlife, and she spends two weeks there, but it's like moments after having been struck by lightning. And her experience of time in the afterlife, and now, now that she's back and has these supranormal skills, right, is like a cake. So you can kind of cut upwards and diagonally or backwards and diagonally down through time in one direction or the other in a sense that looks like a block universe, right? So I can go up to the future where this is happening and I can sort of feel that. She can kind of navigate through, her interiority can navigate through time forwards and backwards. And she says it feels like a cake, like it's sort of, you can go up and backwards or forwards and diagonal and, and, and whatever. And it's kind of like how you slice and cut it. Now, that would look like evidence for a block universe. And it is. Like you can, you can use that if you were a block universe proponent to, to say Elizabeth's experience supports this. However, her experience of it and my experience of it when I've had kind of weird time stuff with entheogens and so on is more what I said before, that the past and the present and the future are in dialogue so that the future can cause things in the present and the past, obviously, we experience the past kind of causing things in the future. So this, it comes back to the idea that the universe is alive and, and almost like a gathering of time being. So that you, I think both are in play, right? I absolutely think that in, in certain cases, and the trouble with the block universe is it's not alive. But if you correct remote viewing or any kind of correct divination or fortune telling, is almost like definitionally seeing future events as they happen. But like I know Eric has had long conversations with Mitch Horowitz about this from a new thought perspective, because new thought is the idea that human thoughts are in some way causative. So do you, when you are manifesting various new thought miracles um, in your life, think and grow rich stuff, are you causing that in the future or are you feeling that in the future that was already going to happen, right? And I think in some cases it's both, and it would be both in, in a living system. Like in, in a living universe, it would absolutely be both. But if you're in inside, well, it's, it's Wednesday here, so I'm going to use this as an example. So if you're inside Wednesday, which I am, it sort of stands to reason that you can encounter or engage with a future Wednesday. And the premium members have kind of done that with Lunar Mansions, where that's one of the interesting things we discovered by working with lunar mansions as a timing and magical system is that when one mansion rolls around, you can do stuff that more easily impacts a future mansion. So it's almost like if you have, and the example I used was, if you have an exam coming up uh, at 10 a.m. October 15th, 
you know, use your Astro software and work out what the mansion is, and then you can, and, and whatever it happens to be, when that mansion rolls around now, <laughs> that's when you do the enchantment for a successful exam. And that's kind of what I mean by these are the things we used to know. And I'm not sure if that's a block universe thing because you always get caught in that infinite R, but you're always going to do that loop, right? And that's why I think it's a good gym. I think it teaches you to think with time in a way that is robust and useful, but I, that doesn't mean I think it's an accurate description. I think it's like a dead description of something true, which is that the universe is alive and, and part of that is that it's a collection of time beings. Perhaps the gymnasium is a workable bridge to reanimate that dead block universe. Sounds like they're less in conflict, but to reanimate the block can unveil the living universe. It comes back to the phenomenology, right? So, and this comes back to, as a result, how we allow things to be real. Mm. Okay, so the block universe is almost a mathematical proof. So it's, it's how we allow things to be real with empirical tools that we have officially declared make things real. So how we measure things in, in centimeters and inches and, and, and whatever, right? So it comes out of that, and, and that is not phenomenological. Phenomenologically, broadly speaking, is that the true thing, the one true thing is sensory experience. Like, is, is, that, is that moment of whatever it happens to be is the true thing, and you kind of have subsequent, everything else is secondary to that from the level of sort of reality. So does the universe feel like a block to you? And it doesn't. And it certainly doesn't when you're in ceremonial context. So again, if you're in a, in a Maloka in the Peruvian jungle, you know, with an ayahuasca of 30 years experience and you're there in communion and have an experience of time where it's almost like there is no time. It's just this moment, this eternal moment of living universe. That's not a block universe. And I assert I assert the phenomenology or the ontology of that. And that's the difference. And you're never going to get, you're never going to get that to fully mesh or match with a block universe idea because they, they emerge from different epistemologies, right? They emerge from which thing you think is true. And that's kind of why, because you can do the same thing to block universe proponents. If they go, well, you're just going to, you're always going to say that or you're always going to experience that because it's a block universe. But you can do that in the living universe too, which is your experience of the universe that is alive involves you building this idea of it as a block. So they, never, they can never talk and they can always get underneath each other eternally. <laughs> so it, doesn't really, it doesn't solve. And so for me, because I like it and I really like Eric's book and I like Eric, I think of it as a gym and it's been a really useful one certainly more useful than my actual gym, which has been closed for six months. Yeah, I think of it as a gym that can teach you interesting things about time. So in our experience of the cosmos as a living sentience, interior and exterior, to what degree can our anthropomorphic subjectivity know or understand non-anthropomorphic subjects? I mean in particular abduction, contact, with non-human entities, etc., the high strangeness attending that. What hope is there from an anthropomorphic locus to apprehend or just be in genuine relationship with non-human beings? There are a lot of bipedal hominid 
appearing entities in the mix, but how much should we hope to obtain in this regard? Well, again, this is like a cross-comparison thing, right? Most of us, on a population basis, kind of know how to do it, right? So if you consider that the percentage of people that think materialism is true on the planet is what under 5% of the planet's population. There's only 300 and something million people in the U S there's only 60 something million in the UK and so on. And of them, it's still a minority, although a sizable minority that thinks materialism is correct. You're dealing with a really small fragment. And then if you just sort of think sideways across the planet, Andean shamans, feng shui specialists in China, all of sub-Saharan Africa, India, Mongolia, and its shamans, like you, you look across and go, well, actually, it's kind of our problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. so, it's like white nonsense. <laughs> and so that's always been interesting to me. It's like, how do we do this? How have we fallen away? I'm like, have we? <laughs> have we? Or is this more, and I think it is, more post-imperial crap? Like I call it the Cartesian head trauma early seven well mid 17th century late 17th century we just kind of split everything up and, and and trapped the entire spirit world of which we are embedded inside our head and then within a century said it wasn't even real that's just us no one else is that stupid no one else has ever been that stupid everyone else including ourselves up until 300 years ago would never have thought that and it's what whitehead calls our last three provincial centuries it's when european cultures and their flowdowns made this monumental error that we've mistaken for reality, but no one else made it. And I kind of think that's the first step when people are like, well, how do we, is it even possible for us to do that? I'm like, I think, I think most people did. If you situate yourself in an indigenous context, somewhere like New Zealand or Australia, the language of like, we literally come from the stars as part of it. We have off planet ancestors. This is all part of being in that context and it's normal. And it's probably true. I mean, it's, we, we have to be careful not to do that. I hate this. This is like the most 20th century boomer stuff, but like science is now showing that is true. I hate that because it's, it makes science still the gatekeeper of what things are and aren't allowed to be. That said, the most interesting stuff to do with panspermia and directed panspermia, especially when you realize the sort of retroviral transfer that's available to I think it's the, the majority action in evolution, as far as I'm concerned, is that sort of horizontal gene transfer. When you realize that we have several tons of this material land on the planet every day, and you have organisms like the octopus that have no evolutionary antecedents, and then all of a sudden, night and day, have all these alien skills, like being able to change colors and have languages and all the rest of it coming out of a fairly primitive organism. And if you look at it from the, arche or the evolutionary record, it's like a switch went on. That, the octopus is an alien, is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, but all of a sudden, we have within an accepted materialist discourse a version of stories that have always been true in non-Western contexts. And that's really exciting to me. So that's the kind of like, okay, when you're out on country with Australian Aborigines or with certain Maori iwi or when you talk to people in my context, they're like, yeah, we have star ancestors and these guys are from here and, and whatever. The, the language of, of situating Earth in the cosmos is not just 
normal, but it's situating it in a, in a living cosmos. So I think to answer your question, like, can we ever do it? Step one is a, is a solve for us. It's the same solve every time. It's like, find out however you need to, that the universe is alive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then it, it kind of, that change, especially when it comes to creativity, we have all these tools available to us, right? So we need a improved theory of mind than the one we inherited from, from our culture. Because once that happens, the idea of extra dimensional inspiration for, for creativity renormalizes because what you think thoughts are in a living universe is very different to what you think thoughts are in this kind of like Cartesian dead universe where they're sort of trapped inside the skull of this ape. Like, in, like it's just the dumbest cosmology. When you think about it, it's the stupidest cosmology a child could do better than the theory of mind that we've, we were born in. And a child has done better virtually every time in the history of the human species as a, <laughs> in terms of the imaginal. So the good news is we've always only ever done this. It's innate. But the bad news is, in the last three centuries, most acutely in the Western world, the sickest part of the world, cosmologically, we've been having a materialist paroxysm. And the West is also the public face of things like the abduction phenomenon, for instance. Yep. Which is truly unfortunate. It is, but it comes back to the same it's the decolonizing project, right? Because the only things that are allowed to be true are materialist things. And it was this ideology that actually birthed empires. So I'm an animist. We've been doing exploring animism and, and how to uncover and recover it for a long time on the website and in the books and with the membership and so on. And the word comes from the 19th century a guy called Tyler. And he basically used it to describe cultures who he thought couldn't tell the difference between dreams and reality. So it's this unbelievably paternalistic description for brown people's inability to see reality and the fucking hilarious, and, and not hilarious because of what happened, but the cosmic joke in that is that the, here is a guy who thinks thoughts are trapped inside a monkey's skull and don't mean anything which includes dreams, are encountering people who realize that human existence is embedded in the context of thoughts and dreams and him going, oh, they can't tell the difference between dream and reality. He's like, but that's you. <laughs> that's you. In the description, he's like, you can't tell the difference between dreams and reality. You look how insane he would have looked to the Siberians he was studying, that he thinks the spirit world is trapped inside his head and it's not real. So who can't tell the difference between dreams and reality? So it's the same imperial project. Um, materialism, the empires ran on materialism because you had, to, you had to have biological fallacies about race and what it meant to be a human for it to work. So it's a decolonial project to realize that not only is materialism false, but it's a priori assumption of gatekeeping truth is politically repugnant. So it's, that's, the, that's the sort of dual process. And all of a sudden, when you, you work through that on an individual basis, you restore the validity of your own lived experience. So the majority of people, literally the majority of people who at least respond to these surveys, have had some kind of after-death contact. It's been a dream encounter with their grandmother, or they've heard the voice of, a, of an ancestor or a past loved one or something. It's, it's between 60 and 70% of Americans have had that happen to them. 
And so we're sort of, we inherit this idea that, well, that's fake, or I invented it in my head, which is a monkey head, and thoughts aren't real, and they're just chemical byproducts inside a monkey head. When you move past the absurdity of that, you suddenly restore in your own life the validity of your own experiences, and in a joyous way that kind of invites comparison and communion with the rest of mankind. Because if you go and instead of being up late at a dinner party going, oh, it's so weird. I was, I was thinking of my girlfriend and then she just rang. Isn't that weird? Or oh, I had this dream. It probably doesn't mean anything after my grandmother's funeral. And she said this thing and then I woke up and I knew where her ring was. Isn't that mm-hmm. weird? And you have these stories and instead of having them be the 2 a.m. isn't that weird, it's probably not real party discussion. If you have those, <laughs> you go out to... Lenape lands or whatever, and you say, oh, I, I had this dream about my grandmother. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you, so your grandmother told you where her ring was. And? <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, I think, has been the exciting part of the journey for me. Like, however you come at it, if you come at it from UFOs, if you come at it from magic or wherever, everyone kind of ends up in that sort of classical Chapel Perilous Bob Wilson moment. And one way or the other, you have to find out that the universe is alive, I guess. So beautiful. And it brings up the emotion and meaning around what it means to be healthy in a sick culture. You mentioned artists, creativity. We presently are incentivized to be upside down and backwards, to divest our work of its animating depth in order to accommodate this materialism that commodifies dead artifacts. Your work and your community are such great places to begin setting a right our forfeiture of that deeper reality, which prompts a question about art as it pertains to humans and non-humans. There are non-human entities who take interest in human artists. Inversely, what about the artistry of non-human entities themselves? We don't see interior environments of motherships, for instance, ornamented with art. That doesn't mean there is not artwork in their social system, but it makes the exercise more interesting finding out what creativity for creativity's sake means to them, including the fey world, the discarnate, expanding to include non-anthropomorphic beings. What is creative enterprise to a mantis? I want to invite you to speak to human creativity in artwork and non-human creativity in artwork. So is art something, so what is art? of mind stuff. Um, what is art and is it something just humans do? And I think of, for instance, the Wanjana, which is also the name of the macro tribe, but the entities from that are called the Wanjana in Northwest Australia. And they're the ones that if you listen to this, you've seen, right? They kind of look, they have big eyes, sort of white alien shaped heads and so on. And these are rain spirits. And they are the artwork. So one of the things that you find in that part of the world is as part of the, the process of being part of the same cosmic tribe as these beings and, and ensuring that, they, that the rains do in fact come is you have to maintain the cave paintings, right? So that's why it's very difficult to, to work out how old uh, Aboriginal Australian cave paintings are because they're updated because they, it, it's not a portrait as we understand it, right? So we don't just like paint the queen and, and put it in an award show and, and, and that's it and there's the picture and it's done. It's not art. 
as it's understood elsewhere. So the, the Wanjina are, in some sense, art, as we would understand them, but they're also rain spirits and they're also ancestral spirits and, and, and so on. So when it comes to, like, do the mantids have self-published novels, um, this, is, this is a theory of mind challenge again, because is a bird singing art? Like when, when she's just singing, because we have, it's spring here and they're loud as fuck, but we just have birds. That, it's not mating calls or anything. It's just, I'm just going to chortle and cheep. Is that art? Is that music? And, and, and so I think it's more situating human creativity, putting it back in the context of things other animals do, which is play. And you watch dolphins flip out of the water. That's for fun. They're not, oh. that's not a, they're not chasing anything. They're not whatever. And so if you situate creativity in, in a non-Cartesian, non-Western context, maybe the, maybe the mantids are art. Maybe, maybe their movement is dance. Do you know what I mean? Like, you put humans back in a living universe and what creativity is, is an act of, of ritual and communion. Because I think that's the thing all humans do. I think the thing that humans do, Tim Ingold says ritual is man's share of events. And that's, again, that's like a peak experience in the jungle for me. But creativity as we understand it would be considered communion with... So if, if I'm an Aboriginal Australian painting or repainting Wanjana, that what we would consider creativity, like the inspiration that happens inside our head to realize I'm going to use this part of the rock and I'm going to use this and I'm going to paint it and, and shape it in this way, is something that happens in conjunction with the one, you know, and we have this available to us in the West, right? Like this is classic Jung, which is to say that he realized through his active imagination process that humans don't have thoughts, thoughts have humans. So he would drop down into his mind and, and they'd be saying things like, we predate you. Like, you think we're in your head. You're not. You're in us, right? Oh. So Philemon is older than Jung. And so we have a way to, like I said before, kind of like see horizontally eye to eye with other cultures available to us. Because the, the thing I definitely don't want people to do, and this is the cl- kind of classic 70s boomer approach, is to be like, all right, then I'm a shaman and I'm going to get my rain stick. And that's gross and doesn't do anything, right? That's just more appropriation. What you need to do is haunt or rediscover that the living universe, we just ignored it. It didn't go anywhere. We don't have to rediscover it or anything, right? So that's the, ch- the challenge when it comes to like, what does alien art look like is, again, we're using a minority definition of art, which is the one that comes out of the European tradition, to look at the entire expanded universe. And I think that's the bit, because all of a sudden, um, maybe, the, maybe the mountains do have art, you know, maybe they are art. Maybe it's the singing and the movement and, and all the rest of it. Cause they're sort of indistinguishable features of being a human. It is a human requirement to do ceremony. Every indigenous culture I can currently think of, it is a human requirement to do ceremony. So when ants start flying in central Australia or whatever, you, if you are ant people, so if that's, part of your expanded tribe in the sense of an Aboriginal understanding of it. And law requires you to be in ceremony for that, right? So is that art? I mean, it is. It's stunning. Like the, the actual ritual performance is stunning. Um, is it art? Because they they're not doing it for the art for art's sake that we think of when we think of painters in Parisian garrets. Yes. If we consider as an example the 2400 extent species of mantid insects with their stupefying beauty and variation as that 
generative expression manifesting as sentience on the planet. What an astounding array of creativity with no apparent genetic utility, so to speak. That's so that's cool. it. Like I think art is a poor description of expressing joy. And yeah, the way humans do it is a bit special because everything, every entity has a kind of like specialness, right? And you make a good one there with the mountains. That's it. You watch, you just observe the uh, more than human world and you see things like joy and play and stuff that we, that has always been there that we decided wasn't because it's some sort of clockwork universe gradually running out of steam, like this 19th century steam engine. That's all wrong. <laughs> it's yeah. a mess of an idea. And so... Yeah, mounted breeding season, or when they all fly, it's the same thing, or the crabs on Christmas Island. There's sort of great migrations and joy. You watch animals just be themselves, and is it, is it dance? And this is, kind of comes back to, obviously, one of my all-time favorite, if not my favorite writer ever, is Ursula Le Guin. And there's a quotation from Always Coming Home, which is, being is praise, I do not know what there is to believe. And that's... That's proper animism, right? Mm. That's just... Sharks are sharking, crabs are crabbing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's praised. They don't go to church. <laughs> Be sure to catch part two of our conversation with Gordon White. For more on Gordon's work and his member site, check the show notes. Ert de Helder, Baptism of Christ. The Helder was a Dutch painter who lived from 1645 to 1727. He passed at the ripe old age of 82, notable longevity for the times. He was one of Rembrandt's last students, and among his most devoted and talented. Now in the 21st century, one particular work by de Helder remains inveterately relevant, Baptism of Christ, completed in the year 1710. As the title indicates, it depicts Jesus being baptized. However, that blessed event takes place beneath, well, let's call a spade a spade. It takes place beneath a flying saucer. There's a flying saucer hovering in the sky over Jesus as he's being baptized. The saucer emits four columns of light, which cast the scene in an Empyrean glow. I suppose one could say that disc in the sky represents the Holy Spirit if it, <laughs> if it weren't a flying saucer. Perhaps it could be a symbol of celestial divinity, excepting for the fact it's a flying saucer. I guess its saucerful countenance makes it hard to not recognize the saucerness. It would take a Neil deGrasse Tyson or an Elon Musk to explain away such self-evident morphology. I could be wrong. I do have a wrong record. So judge for yourself. To see the baptism of Christ, check the show notes where you can also buy a print for $15 from that great repository of Dutch masters, Walmart. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one -on -one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions focus on transpersonal hypnotherapy, creativity as a spiritual path, and anomalous experience. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session, 
or just check the show notes. And the Experiencer Group, a private membership site for those who've encountered anomalous phenomena, including near-death, precognition, contact with non-human entities, and much more. The Experiencer Group offers private support groups, exclusive content, and live events. Check the show notes to become a member and get one month free. Fabergé eggs are ovoid marvels crafted by the house of Fabergé under the mastery of Peter Carl Fabergé. Each egg was excreted from the enchanted cloaca of an Eastern Orthodox ostrich or Pravoslavni Strozy in local parlance. Indentured Ukrainians licked clean all aviary afterbirth, and the elliptic forms were festooned with effulgent stones. Only 57 survive, which is why only the next 57 patrons will receive a Fabergé egg. <gasps> Crack it open and discover a bedazzled aborted baby bird bathing in ebullient bloodstones. What ostrich banshee? I don't hear an ostrich banshee. Pravoslavny Strauss Banshe. Last night someone drove his balls around Last night someone swung his fist 